well, I need to come out of the closet. And unfortunately, this will probably be the only thing you'll remember from my entire message. But when I get really kind of tired of the of of Caleb, is that terrible to say? But sometimes the same songs are playing over and over on the Christian stations. I'm sorry, I don't have XM radio. I switch to country. I admit it. Now, when they start talking about getting drunk and beating their wives, I do turn it off. But, you know, sometimes country music can be quite profound. It tells a story, and it can sometimes, sometimes have a real simple truth to it. And so I was listening the other night, and I heard a song I hadn't heard before by James Wesley, and so all the other closet country fans will know this song. It says, 500 channels and there ain't much on tonight, but reality shows that some folks so-called lies. A pretty girl cries because she don't get a rose, but she'll find love next year on her own show. And they call that real. Real is the hand you hold 57 years. Real is a band of gold trembling with fear. And it's the first long tear down an old man's face, watching his angel slipping away. His heart's so broke, it's never going to heal. I call that real. Where I live, housewives don't act like that. <laughs> and the survivors are farmers in John Deere hats. Our amazing race is beating the check, praying that the bank ain't ran it through yet. <laughs> That's real. Did he just so nail it? <laughs> we have such a fascination of peeking into each other's lives, of being entertained and fascinated by other people's so-called realities. And the danger is to really believe it's real. Isn't that the danger? What's real is what's happening in Nehemiah 4 and 5, what we just have been looking at. It's so real, it's so alive, that Israel's enemies are not entertained. They are not fascinated. They are threatened. The people of Israel are coming alive by the hand of God, a people once distant, once dry, once damaged because of their own rebellion and sin, are coming together. They're being restored. They're being rebuilt. They're being revived because of repentance. The rebuilding of their lives is the rebuilding of their community, and it is something that is intended to actually come alive, something truly authentic, something that is real. So again, their enemies are not fascinated, they're angered, because they are uncertain of what to expect, and they don't know what to do about it. See, it's not predictable who's going to get the rose. It's not predictable who's going to be voted off the island, and they don't get to vote for their favorite idol. They are out of control, and it is freaking them out. They can't complain to the king of Persia, because Nehemiah has his authority and his permission for this, this project. And so what do they do? They mock them. What are these feeble Jews doing, Nehemiah 4.2? Will they restore it themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned what's in, at that? Come on, people. You guys are feeble. You really think you're going to build your community? You really think you're going to build your, your home? You're a bunch of idiots. This word feeble means miserable. It means fading or a withering plant. He's, they're calling them good-for-nothings. You are good for nothings. It's used in scripture for people who have no hope. If they say to them, will that you, you sacrifice in a day? Will you finish up? And what was happening in that time is people would, whenever they would finish building a project, they would sacrifice to the idols that helped them. And so they're teasing them. Are you going to build this up in a day and then sacrifice to your so-called gods? They're basically ridiculing their faith and they're saying, why don't you just go home and pray about it? And they do. They go home. And they pray about it. Ironically, the very things they mock them for are true. 
and the very things that they mock them for become true, ironically. It is true that they're withering plants. It is true that they have been good for nothing in their sin. But what is also true is they are about to come alive. So when they say, are you going to revive these stones, even the burnt ones? They are mocking them, but they're prophesying. Is that so, our God? Go home and pray about it, why don't you? And they do. And then they remember that they are engaged in something that's real. Not something that's intended to fascinate or entertain, but something that's real. They themselves are the revived stones. They themselves are coming alive. Phillips Brooks, you heard this last week, and I've been meditating on this since. And whenever in any place a soul by free-willed obedience catches the fire of God's likeness, it is set into the growing walls a living stone. In their process of repentance, in their process of returning and crying out to God, they are again taking on the likeness of God. And so God is using them to not just revive a town, to revive his city, but to revive their very lives. They are being made into his likeness, and now they are living stones being placed into a living project. I call that real. And what is the response to what their enemies, how their enemies mock them? I love this. Hear, O our God, for we are despised, and so we built the wall. (laughs) Do you love that? Hear, O God, we are despised. And yet they keep building Nehemiah is steadfast. The people are steadfast. They don't retaliate because it's not personal. The attack is not against them. It's against God. And when we realize that when we're being mocked for the revival that's happening in our own lives, and we recognize that who's really getting mocked is God, we don't have to retaliate. We don't have to react. We can prayerfully respond. So he goes to the one who has breathed life into this project. And as I was thinking about this, I was asking the Lord to, there's been so many times in which he's done this, and I asked the Lord for what, what would be, what is the most recent time or a, a real profound time in which you did this? And he took me to a very hot Korean restaurant in Central Asia last October. And God had been having me teach several different groups of women in the underground church, and we were teaching mostly on the book of Ruth, which is much easier to do with a translator because you've got a story, and you can, you can kind of, they can follow stories, and stories are easier and, and more engaging. And, but I'm going to teach this last group, which was probably my most intimidating leader. I so respect her, and I'm very careful, very cautious with her women, as they all are, incredible trust. And God says to me, you need to do the Sermon on the Mount. Not very translatable. If you, those of you who were with us last semester, try doing that and having it translated into two different languages. Very conceptual, very deep. And I thought, oh, Lord, I can't do this. <laughs> and I whined, kind of like the Israelites did later. And Michelle was great about kicking me back into reality and go, having me go to the one who breathes life into projects. And so I continued to pray. And here we are in this restaurant, and it's, it's very hot. They had an Indian summer. And we're in a restaurant, a Korean restaurant, so every time a waiter comes in, I have to stop because we don't want them to know what we're doing. We have to close all the windows because we don't want anyone to hear what I'm doing. I've got my notes under the table, and we're all sitting around. We keep getting interrupted by waiters coming in. I have to keep stopping, and I'm trying to teach the Sermon on the Mountain, this kind of environment. Everyone's sweating. They're fanning themselves, and I'm saying, Lord, and I'm hearing, you feeble Jew. (laughs) Are you going to revive these stones? Are you going to keep these women awake? And I kept praying, oh, God, Elohim, (laughs) 
you who breathe life, if you have called us to be here, this is yours. This is yours. And it kept trying to silence the the voices and kicking Michelle awake. No, she was praying. By the end of our time together, we were there for several hours. By the end of our time together, we were all weeping together over what Jesus had done for us on the cross. In a hot Korean restaurant with waiters coming in and out. The most awful environment for anyone to teach or speak. God moved. When it's his project, when he's the one breathing life into it, he can do anything. He can do anything. He can blow us away. So when we are facing those enemies, we say, Elohim, God of the universe, creator of all things. It is you that has breathed life into this project. It is you who's breathed life into me. I will trust you. I will pray to you, and I will build the wall by your strength. You are for us. Who can be against us? Romans 8.31, Nehemiah knows that prayer will keep him focused, keep him remembering whose this is. In that Korean restaurant, it wasn't about me. It had nothing to do with me. It wasn't my project. It was God's and his love for these women, his desire to break their hearts and to revive them and to encourage them. C.S. Lewis says, prayer does not change God, but it changes her who prays. Nehemiah isn't trying to get God to do anything necessarily. He's realizing that he needs to pray to the God of the universe so he can be changed. His faith can be increased. He can remember who is on the throne, who is the breath behind every living project. Nehemiah sees who the enemies really are. They provoked you to anger. I'm not going to be angry because it's you they're provoking. It's you they're sneering at, God. And that is why he can pray the kind of prayer he did to God about them. And what's their and the response of the people is is amazing. They just again, it's we built the wall. It's kind of like the World War II slogan, praise the Lord and pass the ammunition. <laughs> you know, they prayed and it was like pass the ammunition. And then the enemies witnessed a previously unseen reality. These walls being repaired, being made whole. This word repaired is really fascinating. It it has to do with wholeness or healing. It's like healthy skin growing over a wound. Isn't that great that God in the Hebrew uses that word? These walls are being healed. They're becoming whole. This woundedness, this, this disgrace, this shame is being covered by the healing work of God. And they're blown away. The holes are being filled with so-called burnt stones, cursed stones. Burnt stones were cursed, thought to be cursed, and yet they're coming alive. They are seeing something that they've never seen before. And I love what C.S. Lewis says about what others should be seeing about those who are alive in Christ. Their very voices and faces are different from ours. Stronger, quieter, happier, more radiant. Listen to this. They begin where most of us leave off. What they're seeing is, is that the people of God are going, are beginning where normal people, everyday people, people who think they're in real life that aren't, leave off. They're able to go beyond what they had seen. Israel, beginning where most of them leave off, infuriated them. They can't handle that kind of change. And so they plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion, Nehemiah 4.8. So now we've got back to our bullies again, Sambalot, Tobiah, and now we have the Arabs and the Ashdodites, and they're surrounding Jerusalem to attack it, to cause confusion. They've got them blocked. What is Israel's response? 
Praise the Lord and pass the ammunition. And we pray to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. Israel continued to pray for protection for this project that God had given them. But then we see real, don't we? The physical threats are getting to them. It hit them at a low point. They're tired. They're weary from the project. They're losing support from the community. Listen to what happens. In Judah, it is said, the strength of those who bear burdens is falling. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come along them and kill them and stop the work. And at that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us, ten times, you must return to us. Great. So now they're plotting to kill him. And now their brothers who are living in the outer, outer areas are saying, you better come back home. Ten times. Wouldn't you love that? Ten times you're failing. This isn't going to work. You're going to be killed. The work was too great. They were developing attitudinal rubble. <laughs> like the burnt stones that was becoming their attitude. It was becoming the rubble all around them. And what's interesting is, is this, um, this, this cry out that the Jews are having is actually a rhythm or a rhyme. In other words, it's a song. They started singing. It's too great. It's too hard. And in the Hebrew, there's rhyme and rhythm in it. So they really started chanting a song of we can't do it. <laughs> and it so reminded me of poor Michelle having to listen to me as I'm pouring over the Sermon on the Mountain, panicking. I'm just crying out a song repetitively. I can't do this. I can't do this. I can't do this. And thankfully, she said to me, no, you can't, but God can. If this is his project, he will do it. So they're, they're discouraged. They're having all this propaganda against them. And ten times they're being told, you're getting kicked off the island. You're not surviving. This is not going to happen. They needed to be reminded that they were set apart. They needed to re-remember that they had been set apart specifically to engage in something that was real. And as we talked about a couple weeks ago, because it's spiritual, it comes with pain. It comes with problems and it comes with persecution. It is real. And they identified and they reinforced the weaknesses. They responded to it in a very real way. And that is so important to us. I love that they stopped the work and they arranged the people. Sometimes we need to do a timeout and we need to stop the work and we need to rearrange and we need to look and we need to ask God for wisdom and say, okay, there's a moment that we need to pray and we need to look and see where our holes are, and where we need to support one another. And I love that he divides them into clans. This was the way that Israel traditionally thought, fought. Clans were like a thousand men armies. They were put into clans. And so Nehemiah puts them in a visual picture that reminds them of who they are. That this is who God has made you to be. You are in clans. You are in groups. You are his army. You're not your own. You're mine. And so he gives them a visual reminder of whose they are and who they're to become. And he says to them, do not be afraid of them, these enemies, Nehemiah 4.14. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. I don't know. For some reason, that kind of reminded me of those billboards for the Marines. We don't take applications, just commitments. You know, <laughs> they're so tough. Those You've seen those billboards. It's like, Fight. Remember who you are and what this is about. Remember the Lord. Trust and then action. Trust and action. I love how J.I. Packer puts it. One with God is a majority. You could be alone. And if this God project is living, if this project is God's, you're a majority. One with God is a majority. It is God's 
will that these stones come alive, that we live without shame, that he dwells among us. This is his project. He's the one that birthed it, and he's the one that's putting life into it. We have invisible resources our enemy knows nothing about. And we have visible resources that they're going to find out about in each other. Listen to what J.I. Packer says. The God we serve is great and awesome. Great in his wisdom, grace, faithfulness, and power. And awesome in his habit of exposing his servants to difficulties, dangers, toils, and snares of which he then delivers them. To be a fellow laborer with this God and share in his works of love, blessing, and redemption in this world is a marvelous privilege, the greatest that life affords. That's the reality God wants us to engage in. That's what we've been made alive to be a part of, is this work of love and blessing and redemption in this world. What a privilege. That's what's real. So he also shows them, again, that they're supported visibly as well as invisibly. And they're given fresh courage to trust what is real. To be a community. To be made alive by the resources of God. Again, both invisibly, his power and his strength, but also visibly in one another. To really stump their enemies. Listen to what John Piper says. God created us for this. To live our lives in a way that makes him look like the greatness and the beauty and the infinite worth that he really is. This is what it means to be created in the image of God. You have been called to be a witness to my awesomeness, to my power, to my greatness. And you will be because of me and my strength that I will give you. You have been created in my image And so they have this plan of support, half work while the other half stand guard. Everyone works together. And don't you love that? They have a weapon in one hand and they're building with the other. And we're just thinking, oh, such great pictures of of the sword as we continue to work the God's word as our weapon. And we continue to, to stay at the task of what he's called us to do, the own revival and rebuilding and restoring in our lives. Isn't it just beautiful how they work together? I had a great illustration of this, and I got permission to share, but I have to change some names. So I was, uh, I was praying for a friend, and so I sent her a text to let her know she's been walking through a challenging time. So I sent her a text saying, I've been praying for you, and I'm praying for you right now. And so then I had gone on to study, and I was praying and asking God for examples for this particular passage. And um, I get a phone call about a half hour later, and this friend of mine, we'll call her Susie, she calls and she says, I have to tell you, you just increased my daughter's faith and leaves this voicemail for me. So I thought, I got to hear this. So I call back. What happened? What happened? She says, well, my daughter, Cindy, she sits down with me to tell me that she's gotten her first speeding ticket. And she says to me, Mom, why are you handling it so well? She said, right then my phone goes off. So I look at my phone and it says that you're praying for me. So Cindy, the daughter, says, well, that's why you handled it so well, because Patty's praying for you. Do you love that? And so I just thought that was so great. So then what I told Susie, my friend, is I said, well, one of the funny part of the story is I was praying for an example of how we work together. And my phone beeped right when I was praying for that example, but I didn't answer my phone because I was studying. Go later, and exactly when I was praying for an example, you called my phone to tell me that what I had sent increased your daughter's faith. You've got to tell your daughter that. And so her daughter... Ben says, see, it was God's will. I get a speeding ticket. (laughs) 
so that I could help you guys with this twisted love triangle that you're in. Do you love that? And I love that she said, this is a twisted love triangle. Yes, it is. It is, and that's what's bugging the enemies. This is a twisted love triangle of supporting one another and half working and, and half, half standing guard. Ladies, we need to be this for each other. Through text messages, through Facebook, redeem Facebook, through loving each other. I know there are places in each of your small groups and in lives outside of this study where people are needing us to stand guard while they fight or to fight and let them stand guard for us. We need to be a part of these twisted love triangles that just blow away the enemy. Show the enemy what life really is, what is truly real. I love that they'll rally together in a moment's notice. They're spread out. The work is tough. We're spread out. We're going to leave here today, and we are going to spread out for the glory of God, I pray. And we need to blow the shofar. We need to blow the trumpet when one of us is in trouble, and we need to come together. We need to be willing to admit that we need to come together, and we need to respond. Our sisters in Central Asia are blowing the horn, ladies. There's breaches in that wall. And we have a tremendous privilege to pray for them, to not just pray for each other, which is so crucial. And I love hearing the stories of how you're doing that for one another. But we have sisters who are suffering in such significant ways, and they are counting on us. And if you don't have a prayer partner where Michelle is working to match you up with a specific sister that we can give you information about, someone you can pray for by name, if you don't have that yet and the Lord is laying that on your heart, see Michelle today. She's here. Michelle, raise your hand. Where would you go? She's right there. She'll be out there. She will give you a prayer partner, a picture, a woman that you can stand in the gap for, that you can stand guard while she works. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us. There our God will fight for us. They're supported and they're sacrificial. Nehemiah 4:22 to 24, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, and that they may be guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand, supported visibly, sacrificially. Now, this doesn't mean that they didn't sleep, but it does mean they didn't go home. You see, Jerusalem's still a mess. People aren't really living there yet. We're going to see that in the weeks to come. So they're coming in from the outside to help build, and they were going home to sleep. It's like, no more of that. No one's going home to sleep. No one's even taking off their clothes. You may, we'll take turns resting, but we are not going to leave this place. We need to stay awake for one another. We need to pray through the night for one another. If you can't sleep, ladies, some night, ask God if it's because he's asking you to pray. Don't take a sleeping pill. (laughs) Pray. Get on your knees and pray. As the wall came alive through both the invisible and the visible resources of God, the community began to come alive. But the cost to community had to be paid. You know, when we start working together real tightly, we start blowing the horn for each other, and we start really getting involved in each other's lives, stuff gets uncovered. (laughs) And didn't you see in Nehemiah 5 the reality of the stuff that gets uncovered? Once we start really getting messy and vulnerable and honest, then we begin to, to really see the reality. And I think this is the real project that God wanted to do, not just a living wall, but a living people. 
living stones. Nehemiah 5, and there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. With our sons and our daughters, we are many, so let us get grain so that we may eat and keep alive. We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, our houses to get grain because of the famine. We have borrowed money for the king's taxes and our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children, slavery. We are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved. They're struggling. The dirt's coming out. The dirt's coming out. But we can't be living stones. We can't be a part of something that's really real unless we deal with the dirt. The work on the wall was cutting into the work in the fields. They had large families. There had been famines already. And if the work continues on the wall as it is, they're going to starve to death. They're Their spiritual enthusiasm is giving way to physical pain of their tummies. They were in debt and now had no hope of making payment on the debt without a new harvest. And their sons and their daughters were slaves. This daughters being enslaved means they were becoming second wives. This is human trafficking. (laughs) This is the selling of our daughters to pay our debt. It's disgusting. And it was to their own brethren. It wasn't to the nations. See, they had already bought them back from the nations from being enslaved, and now they're enslaving each other. The wives being involved is really interesting and very unusual. In the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, women are really in the background, and I think God is sending us a message. This was so serious that the wives are involved. This adds weight and significance to this problem. See, Israel was sinning. What good is a wall if what's inside the wall is a mess? Nehemiah is furious for the love and the concern for the community. And I love that in his fury, he gives himself a timeout, as we talked about in our later meeting. Don't you love that? He puts himself in the timeout chair. Why? To hear the heart of God. I took counsel with myself. I didn't just react. I prayed so I would respond. That I would have God's heart, God's plan in what to do. What a great Truth for us when we see injustice in the family of God. To pray and get God's heart and God's truth on how to deal with it. So I took counsel with myself, Nehemiah 5, 7 through 8, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. And I said to them, you are exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them. And I said to them, we, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. One of those incredible moments to be at, wouldn't it, if you could time travel? Like, I'd like to see the faces <laughs> at that moment. Did not have a word to say. Nehemiah comes against them essentially with a lawsuit. That's what he's doing. He's suing them. It's pretty huge. And it's no ordinary court. It's the court of all the people. He pulls them off the job. Because, again, what good is this wall if what's inside the wall is dead? We need to come alive. We are the living stones. And we will not come alive indebting one another, taking advantage of one another, manipulating each other, hurting one another. This is not acceptable. You become pawnbrokers, harsh ones, not brothers. Brotherly love commanded by God had been replaced by greed. 
God had been very clear in his word and his law. We see it in a couple places in Deuteronomy and also in Exodus. You shall not charge interest on loans to your brother, interest on money, interest on food, interest on anything that is lent for interest. You are not to enslave your brothers. This is not okay for the household of God. You're acting like pagan nations. You're no different. You're dead stones, not living stones. You're practicing slavery. You're like burnt rubble. John Piper says, we are more than a collection of our appetites. We are of God. Nehemiah is reminding the people, you're not a collection of appetites. You're not to give in to that fleshly stuff of greed. You're to trust God. Indebting their brothers is not trusting God, is it? How do we enslave others within the body of Christ today? We do it every single day. We enslave others by manipulating. We enslave them with our emotions. We enslave them probably the most profound way that we enslave our brothers and sisters and defame and disgrace the name of God is unforgiveness. Ladies, the debt we have been forgiven is unimaginable. If God were to allow us to see our true debt of sin, we would go insane. We would be unable to handle the reality of how sinful we really are given to ourselves. And yet in our pride and our arrogance, we have the audacity to hold people at debt of unforgiveness. It is a very indication that we don't get the gospel. And we don't need to try harder to forgive. We need to saturate ourselves in the truth of the cross. And we will not be able to help ourselves. We will have to forgive. If you cannot forgive a brother or sister, then you need to know more deeply the cross. What Christ has done and the power of his resurrection. And I promise you, you will be transformed. Don't try to pull up your bootstraps and try to make yourself forgive somebody. Go bow down at the cross. Fall prostrate at it. Ask God to show you what that cross really means, and you will rise up and forgive by the power of the Holy Spirit. And it is a disgrace to the nations around us when the body of Christ is holding one another in unforgiveness. What is lawful in the marketplace is not lawful in the family of God. The world will tell you you don't need to forgive. That's condoning it, or that's this, or that's that. What is lawful for the world is not lawful in the family of God. Nehemiah is basically saying, what are you doing calling yourself people of God and doing this? Ladies, this is very personal for me. My father, who has still not come to faith, I remember him telling me when I was first a believer, they're just a bunch of hypocrites. He was a project manager of a large engineering company. And the people who worked under him who professed to be born-again Christians were the crooks of his team. The ones who were lazy, the ones that cheated on their time cards, the ones who cheated on their wives. He didn't want any part of it. In fact, those who were involved in cults were more moral than the ones that called themselves born-again believers. There is no place for this. This is disgraceful among God's people. James Boyce says, to put it in sharp terms, we need to stop calling the world to repent until we repent ourselves. We are living stones. We are part of the body of Christ. We must put away, we must repent of our disobedience of the law. 
our exploitation of the poor, unforgiveness, our greed. And we need to engage in what is real, what is alive. I love this. Nehemiah essentially calls for a year of jubilee. What God had done with his people is every 50 years he called a year of jubilee. And what would happen is, is if you had to go into debt because you couldn't pay for, for your, you had a bad harvest and you did have to mortgage your land, like we saw in the book of Ruth, those of you that were with us last year, every 50 years, the land went back to its original owner. And anybody who was enslaved because of debt or was working off a of debt was freed. An incredible thing, incredible truth that God wanted his people to remember all the time that they are not slaves and that no one can take away their inheritance. And so he's reminding them, he's calling for a year of jubilee, consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. The land shall not be sold in perpetuity, perpetuity, for the land is mine, for you are strangers and sojourners with me, for it is to me that the people of Israel are servants. It was to remind the people of what is real. Stop living for this world and cash and greed and and exploitation. Remember whose you are. Cancel the debt. Return the land. Because it's mine. It's not yours. We must put away this disgrace that is among us that has dishonored the God of our fathers. We must stop living for what is not real, the temporal stuff, earthly treasures. We must live for what is eternal. We must come again together and be alive, evidence the reality of God in the canceling of debt. I don't think we evidence any more powerfully the reality of God than when we cancel the debts of each other, freely and without condition. And we've talked about this a hundred times. That doesn't mean we trust. Forgiveness is very different than entrusting ourselves again to someone who can harm us. But we can forgive the debt, we can refuse to see the need to make them pay us back. A.W. Tozer says, 100 religious persons knit into a unity by careful organization do not constitute a church any more than 11 dead men make a football team. The first requisite is life, always. And that's the year of Jubilee, recognizing who gives life, coming alive to God. Being alive. And then we see this sanctifying that happens because they say, we will give this back. The people respond, we'll restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say, Nehemiah. And all the assembly said, amen. (laughs) And praise the Lord. Don't you love that? They didn't just say, oh, amen. All right, we'll do it. They praise the Lord. What does that tell me? They're relieved. Ladies, when we cancel each other's debts, we will be the ones that are free. Because the reality is, anyone we're holding into debt, we're holding ourselves in prison. We are the ones being imprisoned. I think that the people were relieved. That's why they praised the Lord. We want this done. We can see that this is keeping the community dead rather than alive. We agree. Praise God. They're relieved over all the tension. And they're seeing that sanctification is a community project. And we're all in. We're in. And we see how the project is sustained. And I think this is so beautiful, how, this, how these living people become sustained and the sanctifi- sanctification, they're changing and being formed into the likeness of God stays alive. And we see this in Nehemiah's example. He says, I know my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people, but I didn't do that because of the fear of God. 
I also persevered in the work of this wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. And then it's the very end of, of five. Remember, oh my God. Remember my good, oh my God. All that I have done for this people. See, the, the work continues partly because those in charge were evidence of what it means to be alive. They started with themselves. They didn't hold anyone captive or enslaved. They didn't put burdens on the people. And so the project can continue. Out of fear for the Lord, Nehemiah personally evidences what it means to be a living stone, to live for what's real, to be set apart for something alive. It's interesting. Commentators disagree as to whether Nehemiah had, had anybody in his debt because he says, I and my brethren, we will repent of this. Some say he was just identifying with the people and recognizing that the whole community was a disgrace, something that maybe he had fallen into it himself. We don't really know. And I don't think we need to know because, honestly, it's not about Nehemiah. I think it's about us. It's about Jesus Christ. It's about the living stones that we are and who he is. And there is no doubt that Jesus has never held anyone in his debt. That Jesus, our example, the one who sustains our sanctification, not only does he not hold us in his debt, he took on our debt. He became a slave so we could become free. And you're probably thinking, oh my goodness, how does she pull Jesus out of this again? Ladies, I'd rather see Jesus where he isn't than miss him where he is. (laughs) That was Charles Spurgeon. He is here. Every single passage testifies to who Jesus is. And in Nehemiah's example, I think we're to see Jesus. He, we owed him a debt. Our sin, which demands death. He, sinless, became a slave on our behalf to set us free to be our cornerstone. The place in which we, the living stones, are placed. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Nehemiah, a living stone, he refused to lay heavy burdens on the people. Jesus, our cornerstone, came and died to take on our burdens. He didn't just not put extra burden on us. He took on our burden. Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Nehemiah, a living stone, devoted himself to the work of restoring, rebuilding, and reviving a people for God's glory. Jesus, our cornerstone, died to ensure our restoration, to solidify it, to ensure our rebuilding, to ensure our revival. And Jesus lives today to make it happen. He is alive, and he is at work making us alive. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. We know from the scriptures that he is interceding for us right now. John Owen says, Holiness is nothing but implanting, writing, and realizing the gospel in our own souls. Ladies, if we could really get a handle on the reality that he who began a good work in us will do it, And recognize that as, again, as I said earlier, that as we lay ourselves prostrate at the cross and let ourselves saturate as Paul did to resolve to know nothing but Christ and him crucified, we will come alive by the power of God. Nehemiah, a living stone, 
I love this. He asked God to remember what he has done for the people. Jesus, our cornerstone, relied on God to remember what he did for us. He stretched out his arms, gave up his spirit, and said, it is finished. Ladies, that's our banner. That's the truth. That's our power. That's our strength. That is everything. That is what makes us alive. To come alive as we are intended to come alive, we must meditate on this truth. We must let it saturate our every bit of our being, our every cell. If we do, God will address our struggles. God will deal with our sin. God will sanctify us. We don't have to go looking for it. We don't have to kind of stir it up. We don't have to go searching and digging. If we lay ourselves before that cross and we ask him to really cause us to understand it, he will bring it to the surface. And then he will take care of it. He will evidence in us what it means to be a new creation, a living stone for his glory. I love how Sinclair Ferguson says that those who have forgotten about their own spirituality, you know, trying to do it themselves, because their focus is so exclusively on their union with Jesus Christ and what he accomplished are those who are growing and exhibiting fruitfulness. We bypass that, don't we? We try to focus on our own spirituality, how we're going to make ourselves better. And we're frustrated and we're tired and then we even get angry. What God has called us to do is so focus on our union with Christ that we can't help but bear fruit. We can't help but come alive because he's our cornerstone and we are living stones that as we become in his likeness, we are set into that wall. 1 Peter 2, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by man, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. I call that real. That's the only real that really matters. It's not entertaining to our enemies. It's not fascinating to them. It's threatening. But ladies, to those God is calling into his community, it's what he uses to draw them in. Is there any greater privilege than to be a living stone for his glory. Let's pray. As we come to you, Jesus, our living stone, Rejected by man, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, our cornerstone. May we be living stones. Built into that spiritual house, that holy priesthood. May our lives be a spiritual sacrifice acceptable to you. Because it's you that's at work in us. Give us your strength and courage and passion for when it threatens the enemies. And give us your joy and excitement when it's used to bring those you are calling into that household to become living stones themselves. In Jesus' name.